0: Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So, before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable, and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This episode is with Jules Hillier. Jules is the chief executive of PAWS. PAWS is a national charity which supports vulnerable women who have had multiple babies taken into care. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because one of the very first podcasts I recorded was with Sophie Humphreys, who was the founder of PAWS. Now, I'm very interested in the transition from initial entrepreneur founder. To long-term chief executive and that's exactly what jules and i spend some time talking about today because it's a very different set of skills and it's a very different role founding something versus making an organization sustainable and growing it we cover a pretty wide range of subjects including the importance of focusing on quality and continuous improvement and how that focus is the thing that eventually drives continual return on investment. Pause is largely a franchise model. So a good bit of our conversation is around the right level of freedom and flexibility to allow individual pause practices to have. And Jules is quite open about how over her time as chief executive, which is over five years now, how they've really learned as an organization the right level of freedom and flexibility, which seems to be quite a bit. And then finally, I think there are some incredibly useful lessons for any chief executive starting a new role, number one of which is you don't have to be good at everything. You don't have to be able to do everything the organization needs. You need to recognize what others are bringing and hire great people, but you also need to know what it is you're bringing and be comfortable with the fact that that's what you bring. You don't have to do everything. And I really enjoyed that part of the conversation. So let's hear from Jules. Jules, you're really welcome onto the podcast. Um, I wonder, could you start just by saying a little bit about who you are?
1: Yes, so I'm Jules Hillier. I'm the chief exec of Pause, which is an organisation that works with women who've had more than one child taken into care. And we work with the women when they don't have children in their care to try and help them make changes in their lives, to break the cycle of repeated pregnancies and removals. In terms of me, I have been in the uh, not-for-profit charity sector all my life. Um, I came through a kind of communications and policy route. So I've traditionally worked for organisations that work with um, often complex or vulnerable or marginalised or disadvantaged or whatever um, the term that was being used at the time through my career was, Uh, often young people uh, or women. And I have been um, focus- i focused on communications policy campaigns those kind of areas
0: yeah.
1: and I have been at pause now for more than five years five and a half years
0: well, yeah no i I can remember when you you joined it was uh, it was very exciting and just um on you and your career choices and things i mean what <laughs> what was it that, that kind of inspired you to really get involved with supporting vulnerable people because that's obviously a choice that you've made really early on
1: yeah so i discovered quite quickly that i had to work for an organization where i felt comfortable with the values and that that became apparent and when i when i thought i have a i have a pretty mediocre degree i enjoyed it but it's not particularly good uh which followed uh, hot on the heels of some fairly crappy a levels um but when i started work Um, I thought I wanted to be something around arts administration. I was particularly interested in theatre administration and I thought that might be interesting. And I worked for a a management consultancy, a very small management consultancy, and had never been so demoralised by the world of work in my entire life. And I lasted there about a year and it was utterly miserable. And I thought, no, this is not for me. Um, not, and then I, not a
0: very good advert for management consultancy. Not a very good
1: advert for management consultancy, I'm afraid, no, um, and then, <laughs> but I won't go into the detail. I think it was <laughs> that particular one. Um, and then I went and my first job in the um, in the charity sector was with the Prince's Trust, actually, um, as a secretary to the marketing director, which was a thing that still happened then. Um, <laughs> I, I realised then that actually working for an organisation that made a difference, whatever I was doing, was really important. And subsequently, I guess through jobs that I have either enjoyed or not enjoyed, and working with people that I've either, you know, learned a huge amount from and respected or not, um, I've I've kind of honed the things that are really important to me in in an organisation and. Um, And I have always found that those organisations that really do demonstrate clearly that they're making a difference to people who who need it are the most exciting, the most interesting to work for.
0: It's really interesting that you had that type of motivation right from the start because a lot of uh, the younger people who we interview for positions now have that. I don't think I had that coming out of university. And it was something that I that I developed later on after maybe becoming a bit a bit disillusioned. So um I think you you maybe experienced a l- little bit of that. But I, I think really the point I'm making is that the type of people who we're seeing coming in to the job market have that need for there to be a values fit and some social impact much more front of mind than maybe I. S- certainly
1: did yeah that's interesting I I mean my so I think one of the things that um has that I've reflected on a lot is that I can remember as a child my mum took me to lobby my MP over um education cuts so it was when the inner London education authority was a thing for older listeners (laughs) um and I can genuinely genuinely remember the feeling of standing in the lobby and seeing all these people having conversations about things that mattered and thinking this is a really important thing to do this really means something and i can't have been i mean i left i left london when i was 12 so i must have been like 10 or 11 or something and i remember the power of that and i've reflected on that quite a lot particularly as not only have i chosen always to work for organizations whose values i share but i've chosen to 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 make the difference that i can not by being a frontline worker, uh, but by campaigning and communicating and thinking about policy yeah. and thinking about those kind of things that make a difference. And I and I often link it back to that feeling because I remember it so clearly of just thinking, Okay, this is where the business is
0: that, done. That's I see. Really, that's really interesting to have that anchor moment. I mean I think mine came much later actually when I was doing normal consulting and happened to be on a project where there was a big social impact that I realized we were making, and at that point, which is probably mid twenties was my point when i when I decided right this is really a, this is the type of stuff I want to do really interesting. we could talk about that a long yes. time let's Sorry. <laughs> let let's get back to pause so uh, as you know, i've previously spoken with Sophie Humphreys, who yeah. founded pause so. Yeah. Regular listeners um, should have an idea of what PAUSE does. I know you said briefly at the start, but just for people who are not familiar with it, would you mind just saying, uh, just really briefly, what PAUSE does and how it does it?
1: Yeah, so so yes, Sophie co-founded us with Georgina Perry in, well, actually Sophie started doing this work in 2013 when she realised that she uh, was seeing women coming through um, in a repeated cycle of pregnancies uh, that resulted in the children being removed from their care um, and she realized we needed to do things differently um, and so she actually started pause in hackney in two thousand and thirteen um, and was really successful in testing a model at that point that was then invested in by the Department um, for Education through their innovation fund. the way that we work with women who 've had um, a number of children removed from their care is through um, practices that are based in local authorities. Um, We have a practice lead, three practitioners and a coordinator, and they work on a one-to-one basis with the woman over a period of 18 months. And in order to commit to the the program the woman has to commit to a pause in pregnancy so we will only work with women who don't have children in their care and who aren't pregnant so that we can really focus on helping them make that change for themselves and we're now we now have uh, 29 practices uh, yeah. Working with 37 local authorities across the country, um, we've got practices in um, Scotland, and uh, we have our practice in Northern Ireland is currently on pause, but it's it's going to open again. Um, we're having challenges with the political situation there and, and releasing funds and so on. Um, so we've we've really grown quickly over the last well since so our pilots were supported by the Department for Education in 2016, and we've grown since then
0: fantastic um so i imagine by now there's quite a bit of it, a bit of evidence regarding the positive impact that yeah you- there
1: is i mean we we're, we're really fortunate to have been part of that department for education innovation fund which was really focused around evidence as well as testing um innovation um so and and we've now um kind of been doing this for a while we have worked with thousands of women now and we're really able to see the difference that we can make um, to women individually uh, whether that's about housing or mental health or drugs and alcohol or um, domestic abuse Um, but we've also got the evidence of a return on investment which is of course important to those local authorities that we want to engage with us so you know for every pound spent you say £4.50 by year four. So we can make a... That's
0: really good. Yeah,
1: it's great. It's pretty
0: impactful. It's great.
1: And it's, you know, it's genuine. It's the stuff I'm least interested in. But it's really good to have it there so that we can say it. And I guess once you are in a local authority, actually, many of them um, bring pause in on the basis of a spend to save business case and so they're then monitoring that themselves so we can go in with this great figure that we've got from really robust evidence but then each local authority will be redoing that work and checking it as they go along and that's how we then end up sustaining but also I think um, we're one of the things that's really important one of the things that Sophie was keen to bake into the model is that although we work with women our work has a real impact on their children. And keeping those children in mind is incredibly important. So in addition to the difference that we can make to women, um, and the difference we can make to the bottom line, we also think we're making a difference to children in um, that women, one of the things that, that we can support women to do is have better relationships with their children, either through letterbox contact, if that's if that's what's been set up for them or through um, supervised visits or whatever it is, we're enabling the women to be more capable, more able of taking some kind of relationship with their children. So we're having an impact on all of those different levels.
0: Fantastic. I think it's very interesting that you said that the ultimate return investment was the bit that you release really interested in. Yeah, I <laughs>
1: know.
0: <laughs> and that actually, whilst... Certainly for a council finance director, that would be a very interesting <laughs> piece of information. I think whether you intend it or not fits with a lot of the uh, advice around high performance and high performing organizations in that you can get totally lost. If you've only got the ultimate goal in mind, you've got to think about maintaining quality and standards and momentum through the process and making that impact because it's it's pretty much a case that if you can keep the um, level of, of performance of those practices at a high level, then the return investment will take care of itself.
1: Yeah, it will. I mean, that's the really important thing, isn't it? We've got this really good quality, really robust evidence from the University of Sussex that gives us this lovely number But if we don't make sure that every practice that we set up after that evidence has been taken isn't as good as all of the ones that came before it, then we're just setting everything up to fail, aren't we? So, I mean, exactly that. Whilst I'm delighted that it saves money... I want to make sure that it continues to be as brilliant as it was when we knew it, when we discovered it saved money. I mean, we yeah. always kind of knew that, but,
0: exactly.
1: you know, we've got the number now.
0: Exactly. So, is PAUSE the only organisation doing this type of thing, or has this catalyzed a new No,
1: market? no. Actually, when Sophie first started working on this, there were a number of other people thinking the same thing, you know, as often happens, I think, when you get you get moments where people say actually enough is enough and it wasn't just in Hackney that women were having um, this experience of repeated pregnancy and removal. So there were a number of other um, people thinking about it at the time um, and researching it and there were there was a, a, a number of different um, services that tried things out. There is now a really healthy community of practice which is a real mixture of organisations like Pause who have a number of services or practices around the country, and really, really tiny, you know, one person in a local authority chipping away at, at trying to do something a bit differently for the most vulnerable um, women and families. Um, and that community of practice is really important because it's through that, that we will be able to make the, the biggest shift for um this particularly vulnerable group of, of families so yes yeah, it's, it's a growing space to be in you know, we have a sector that we can be part of it's not just yeah. us trying to um trying to do everything by ourselves
0: and, and i think in the social sector i think that creation of a I'm going to say the social sector and then use a kind of commercial term, the marketplace. But yeah. in the social sector, that growing of the marketplace is actually a real win for everybody, I think. Absolutely. Because PAUSE can't do everything. No,
1: and,
0: and neither would we POS
1: want to.
0: On, yeah, and if PAUSE was operating on its own, you wouldn't have the impact. But you've catalyzed, or you've played a big part in catalyzing this to be more broadly appreciated as a challenge that needs meeting because it wasn't being met.
1: Yeah, I think we've been... we. We have been a part of that and that has been really important. And we are also now learning from it because, you know, not everybody's everybody's model is slightly different. People work with women in different ways at different stages. You know, there's something really interesting, really different happening in each part of the country. And I think that's that's also really important because even within PAUSE, you know, one of the things that means we work is that there is sufficient autonomy and freedom to experiment within parameters in each local authority and that's what's necessary because this is a very local issue um, and therefore you need to provide local responses and we need to be able to do that as a national organisation as much as a single person working in a local authority can do it for their local authority.
0: Yeah, so uh, I was involved in in a very small way in working with Sophia and Georgina in the establishment of PAUSE through the DFE innovation mm-hmm. programmes is I mean, you've been there for five years now, so it must mm-hmm. be seven years maybe ago. It's yeah. quite quite a, a while difference. ago. And and I know since then it's gone from strength to strength. You mentioned that there were twenty nine practices now. When you joined how, how many practices were there?
1: Seven.
0: Seven. So that mm-hmm. that's a really impressive growth. And I, I find that impressive because there are a lot of innovations that that start and People are impressed by it, but actually sustaining it and growing it is a really different challenge. And I want to come back and ask you about that before I do just a couple of questions about that growth. Um, it's it's more of a franchise model than all of the practices reporting directly to you, isn't it?
1: It is. Uh, we do actually have our own practice now. That's something that we um, okay. has have, have started relatively recently. Um, so we are the direct employers of the practice um, that happens across the Liverpool City region. OK. But so that's, a, that's a recent development. Up until then, you're exactly right. It's essentially a social franchise. And we license people to deliver the pause model in their local authority. And that's either done by a local authority hosting their own in-house team, so they are our delivery partner, or it's done by a local authority commissioning a third sector partner to to host a team. Yeah.
0: You know, going from seven to twenty nine is really impressive growth. So, how have you managed that? Do you market heavily? Do you have to? Do people do people hear about it and come to you, or how does it work?
1: Well, there's a com- combination of things. Obviously, you know, first and foremost, having further investment from DSE, so that we were able to provide seed funding to some local authorities. Not all of them, but but some of that growth was generated because we had the um, the money. To support local authorities to do it, so in some cases, we paid fifty percent of their first eighteen months of costs um and and that undoubtedly gives us an enormous advantage. And, you know, I mean, people are very quick to talk about what can you do that doesn't cost anything. Actually, I think PAUSE is one of those examples of where investment has been really, really well used, really effectively used and really sustainably used. And it's been really important. So we could not have done this on a shoestring. Um, And I think it's really important to say that because I know that lots of people are struggling to do really good innovations and really important things without any cash. And I get a bit frustrated with the whole, oh well you don't need money as long as you do it a bit differently. And it's like, no, no, you need money. You need money. And yeah. um, no, so I, that
0: yeah.
1: that has that was was part of it. You know, when you can go out and say, who's interested in having fifty percent up front for for ten of you to come and do this? You get 10 people very quickly. Yeah. Um, but also, we have a lot of practices that didn't get that upfront funding. And I guess um, part of it is about word of mouth. Um, you know, there's so much movement in this sector. I, I had never really been in the um, social care sector before. And I've been amazed at the amount of movement there is. And people talk, you know, in terms of the, the kind of senior roles in, in children's social care. So there was some word of mouth. Um, We um, held Lunch and Learns. Ever since we were really quite young, we've really wanted to share what we're learning. And um, that was not necessarily... Our intention was not necessarily to to sell more of it by telling people about it. And we've had lots and lots of people attend Lunch and Learns who then went on and set up their own thing. But actually having people come along and hear a bit more about the model and understand what it is that we do has been really, um, really effective. Um, I think we've... um, also looked at where we have practices and whether there are relationships we can create in neighbouring local authorities. So we thought a little bit about where it makes sense for us to grow. I have to say that came probably a little bit later than um, in an ideal world it might have done. You know, it felt at one point it felt like we were almost trying to cover one practice in almost every part of the country and just running ourselves ragged. Well, and then it was quite important for us to think, well, you know, let's do a little bit of thinking about whether we can strategically grow from, from key places. It's
0: really interesting.
1: It's a a combination of things, but I don't think we're um, kind of heavy on the marketing. I also think um, we add quite a lot of value in terms of the things that we do that um, grow from practice. So we, try and listen to women and understand their experience. And we're, we're in a really privileged position, being the biggest organisation doing this, we have an opportunity to hear from actually thousands of women and to make or, or to advocate for change for systems in systems and in policy that we can hear from the work that we're doing with them. And that's a real, um, that's something I take really seriously and I think is a real duty for us to listen and to try and make change. And I think local authorities see that they're part of something bigger often and appreciate that.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I imagine you're the only organisation in the country in touch with that many women in in that situation. So really impressive. Now, I said I would come back to the whole question of, The fact that coming up with an innovation and getting it up and running is one thing, but sustaining it and growing it is something entirely different, an entirely different challenge. So it would be great if you could say a little bit about how that transition worked with you coming in and and how you viewed at that point what the challenge ahead of you was when you arrived at PAUSE.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, when when I first saw the job ad for PAUSE, the hairs went up on the back of my neck, and I knew that it was the job that I wanted. You had and loads of you had absolutely, hundred yeah. percent, and loads of people said, "Oh no, it's got a founder that's going to become the chair. You don't want to get involved in that founder syndrome. It'll be really a nightmare." And it absolutely was not. And to her credit, before I think she even properly looked for a chief exec to to run the charity, Sophie had thought really clearly about where her strengths were and about what she wanted to do and about how she thought PAUSE could grow and about the skills that she would need to to help it grow and what she would do and how she would be part of that. Um, so, first of all, her recruitment of me was really quite careful. We mm-hmm. did an awful lot of meeting with one another and talking very honestly with one another before we signed any contracts. And right from the very start, Sophie said, I want to do two years as the chair of this organisation and then I think I need to be able to move on. And so that was her plan. And that plan was exactly what she did. She was really true to her yes. word. So and that was an absolute gift to me because that meant that I um, came into the organization knowing that for the, the I could spend. I had the luxury of working for the founder for two years and really taking on board the things that, she wanted baked into the model that that would really make a difference and learning from her the things that had driven her to set up the model
0: yeah
1: whilst at the same time thinking about what i could bring personally yeah. and after two years sophie did step down from the board she has always stayed you know she and i talk regularly and um, she's always stayed in touch with us she's always stayed in touch with other people in the organization you know she's very close to practice she knows this world so well and um and so she has always you know I think she will always consider us her her baby you know she'll always but she stopped having that role after two years exactly as she said she said she would so for me I think um particularly the first year for me was about just making sure that I had absorbed as much of the really important stuff from Sophie, as it was possible for me too, and also that I'd started to think about what I could bring that Sophie didn't want, and what I knew Sophie yeah. didn't want was to run a charity. She has absolutely yes. no interest in being the chief exec of the charity. She would be the first person to tell you that. Um, and we used to she have a joke. Yeah, no, absolutely, done. absolutely. And we used to, we used to have a joke that um, you know I would have to patiently explain to her about um, processes and. Um, regulations and you know policy that you needed to go through in order to get somewhere and she would say oh no no you just go around that stuff and I'm like no Sophie you just go around that stuff <laughs> I, I follow that stuff and I set that stuff up so that's what you've got me here to do and you busy you carry on going around things and I'll carry on building it and, and we'll get to the right place in the end yeah. so I guess when I was thinking you, you asked me about um What did I see as the the kind of future, the the challenges when I started? Um, We were at the the start of an immense period of growth um, and of scale and spread. And that had to be successful. Um, It had to be successful partly for the organisation. It had to be successful because it was needed. And it had to be successful because it was being invested in. And we needed to demonstrate that we could spend that money wisely. I saw the challenge being that while we were doing that, we had to maintain the quality of the practices and we had to be really clear about what the key ingredients were that were making the biggest difference so that we could also be clear about where we could flex and the autonomy that we could give to our um, practices. Um, I had to start thinking about sustainability right from the very start and one of the really interesting things about pause is when when you start working with a woman really quite early on you start talking about endings, you start talking about transition and moving on from pause and actually the same was true for me at the start in terms of thinking we've got all this scale and spread but we need it to sustain so what's the transition when the dfe money finishes and then i think probably something that that is always and will always be something i spend an awful lot of time thinking about is do we have the right people and are we giving them the right support and are we making this the place that they really want to thrive so um you know making sure that we had all of the people in place that we needed to and that they were delighted to come to work and, and do it. Because I also knew it was going to be hard work and often chaotic and and often confusing and that all of the things that are difficult when you're at the beginning of something and you don't actually have all the systems and processes necessarily late nailed down will be frustrating so will it matter if we haven't got the communications on something quite right or if that takes a bit longer and so I needed to know that the people would be happy and healthy and loving being at work
0: yeah so was it important for you when you took over to as a bit of a cheesy term but to put your own stamp on pause in some way shape or form or maybe a better way of asking the question is what are you most proud of having achieved over your five years
1: um i'm proud of a lot actually and all of it is done in partnership with an incredible team and probably the thing i'm proudest of is that pause is the organization that has all these incredible people in it who love working there and who want to be there um and and that's amazing it's not yeah. just about the impact that we and i of course i'm proud of the impact that we make and the practices and all of that but actually it's i i thrive on people and working with all these great people is is brilliant um i think i i did definitely think about how i could put my stamp on pause and um, given that Sophie had all of her practice experience and had already recruited an outstanding director of practice and learning who came from a social work background, it didn't matter that that wasn't my background, but it was important that I bought something of myself to the organisation. Um, and one of the things that I really focused on was looking at what the organisation could be in addition that would augment the practice as yeah. well as the practice. So we do a lot of work with um, in our, well, we have a participation programme called Getting Involved, which is where we enable uh, women to influence uh, the way that Pause grows and operates. Um, we have an advisory group of women who advise our board of trustees and other people nationally that are thinking about things. I was really keen that we um, did that work that I've already talked about, which is around influencing and policy, you know, the stuff that was in my uh, background already, yeah. I wanted to really bring to the organisation. So I think, and we and we also do that really well now, and we have a really brilliant director of communications and influencing who leads on that work. So I think... Um, It was almost I I think one of the things that was an absolute gift to me right at the start was that the practice was always going to be good. It was always going to be safe. It was always going to be amazing quality because Sophie had that in her background and Ellen, our director of practice and learning, had it there as well. And so that was always safe and good. I didn't have to worry because that wasn't my area. So I was able to bring some of the stuff that I do know that I am really good at. And that was exciting.
0: I think that's I think that's a fantastic answer, and I certainly know a few chief executives, particularly chief executives, who take over who feel the need to put their stamp on everything, and actually they quite often forget the reason why they were recruited and the skills that they had and I think the fact that you thought really that you thought really carefully about what what you could bring and what you didn't need to bring as critically as what you could bring i think that's really impressive. I enjoyed hearing that.
1: I think it's really important. You have to know what you're not going to bring yeah. because you're going to need to have it. You know, um, you have to. So, so um, I have been fortunate enough to have some really amazing bosses in my career. Uh, one of whom is a guy called Simon Blake, who is currently the chief executive of mental health first aid England. Um, and one of the things he said, well, he actually he said two things. Uh, but one of the things he said, actually, um, I've known him a really long time and he said it years and years ago, is, you know, surround yourself with people who are better than you because they're the people that are going to fill your gaps. Yeah. And I would add to that. So I listen to that. And that is what I absolutely do. But I would add to that also be really honest and open about what those gaps are, because that, that yeah. then um, gives people, indicates to people that you have the trust in them. To fill yeah. those gaps. So I mean, and actually a really good example is scale and spread, where I had no experience of that, but we have an amazing director of business development, Kate Tilley, who absolutely did. And she has felt, uh, alongside the team that she leads, empowered to lead that work. And that's really, really important to me. So, you know, Simon told me to bring in people that were better than me. I did that, but I was also really honest that that's what I was doing, that these were the gaps. and. Uh these yeah. are the people that, that no, are best I, to
0: pilot. I, I think that's that's really top tier leadership because I, I also know organizations led by people who are nervous about anyone who might exceed them and would feel threatened by that and you just can't do that or else you will not achieve things because a leader cannot do it all themselves nor should they and they are the best people to do it um just a, I want to ask another leadership question here so I know you said that you do have a national pause run practice now across yeah. the whole region, but this yeah, is essentially yeah. um, essentially it's still a franchise. A franchise, it is yeah. Yeah. yeah which means that you, and I think you've already answered this in your general approach, but it means that you have to be really comfortable devolving control and accountability to local practices. And um, how does this impact the way you need to be as a leader?
1: Well, it's lucky, isn't it, that in order to do that well, you have to build relationships. Everything is based. The the answer to almost every question is relationships, I think, and people. Um, And it's much harder to um, give accountability or make sure there is accountability and flexibility in a practice where you don't know anyone and you don't trust anyone and you don't know, you know, so... One of the things that's been really important, and this isn't just about my approach, it's about a pause approach, is that we build relationships with local authorities so that actually by the time you have brought the team in um, and you've given them the almost week-long induction that we give all new practices um, and you have allocated them a national practice lead, they are busy building those relationships that are going to make the difference. And you yeah. can feel some real trust in those relationships, and yeah. those trust is massively important because it's not about you know we trust you to deliver some contract, or you know it's not that kind of um sort of formal trust it's a we trust you to do this because you want to do it, and you could and and we can tell that you're able to do it so there is something just about relationships and trust which is just integral to the way that I I think I work you know with relationships and trusting relationships and people and that happens to be what pause needs for it to work yeah. um so I didn't have to come up with any amazing new insights into my leadership style or anything like that because it just happened that that worked um but I think there were also then you know in order to build trust and to have confidence in a relationship there need to be some some of those building blocks, don't they? So we had good quality assurance. Um, we had um, a good quality practice agreement. We've got a really good framework that helps people understand. And and we refer to things. Um, so we talk about purposeful ambiguity. So sometimes new practices will say to us, so what should I do here? And what should I do about that? And the answer is, you, you work it out. So here is some guidance. But it's not we're not it's not a manualised programme. You don't do you know, don't do everything in this order. And so so that all of those building blocks were really important to enable those um, relationships to work so that we could give that flexibility and that autonomy. And at the same time, we have learned. So I think that um, if you were to talk to practice leads from 2017, probably, but before that, too, Compared to how people feel about us now, I think they would have seen us go on a learning journey as a national organisation where we learnt about the things that it was really important for us to be very hard line on and where we learnt that we could actually go, okay, yeah, you can have a bit more flexibility over this. It's fine. And I don't know. You know, it takes a little bit of time and a little bit of confidence in an organisation to be able to to know when you really can. Allow the flexibility and when you want to be really firm and, you know, and our organization has grown in confidence as we've grown in experience. And I think that you would probably hear practice leads. I, my, my guess is that practice leads that have been with us for a really long time are sometimes thinking, well, hang on a minute. You weren't that, you weren't like that with me, you know, five years ago. I can remember you being much clearer about that five years ago. And I think we've evolved, you know, um, and, I think, and
0: that's important i I love the concept of purposeful ambiguity or constructive ambiguity i think it um it, it's so important to enable a journey to continue and for progress to happen so i, I really like that concept Now we've we talked a lot about relationships but me being a bit of a nerd i do want to talk a little bit about funding innovation all right yeah social investment, that type of thing. Oh,
1: okay. The original,
0: yeah, the original, I I find it fascinating. So uh, (laughs) hopefully people listening do too. Um, I'm sure. So the original piloting of the PAUSE programme was funded, as we've said earlier, by the DfE Innovation Programme, as this was an untested idea. So having that innovation funding was really important. Um, The programme then engaged with social investors and willing commissioners to establish a number of social outcomes contracts. Can you say a little bit about how that works? Because I've had a few guests. I've had Mila from Bridges on, I've had uh, Chris Wright from Catch-22, Sophie Clark from Capacity. And the whole discussion about what sort of impact social investment can have has been quite, central to a lot of those discussions and just my own personal experience of knowing how Paul's has engaged in this space. I'd love to get your take on on how, how that's worked.
1: But yeah we've got uh, four social outcomes contracts actually with Bridges and I, I thought Mila was really interesting in your um, in your last podcast actually. Um, the first one of those uh, opened in March 2019 in Plymouth and then a year later and over the course of about six months three more opened and yeah i think so the the plymouth one um was really interesting because that was a a, almost a perfect mix of um a local authority that was really keen to um trial some kind of social outcomes contract um with our model which was actually um i mean at that point there was still some risk we hadn't had all of our evaluation out but actually was a um, a reasonably low risk model actually um, and investors that wanted to invest and I guess that also at the time the Life Chances Fund was available to really um, kind of help with the the marketplace for that yeah. actually. And yeah we so we began the first social outcomes contract in, in 2019 and I think um, it's been a really interesting learning experience for us as an organisation um, and has really given us opportunities to think about as pause what is the data that's really important to us you know what does demonstrate the outcomes who how do we definitely say yes this has been a successful practice um and i think that that having bridges as part of the partnership that that enables the practice in plymouth that's been that's been really useful
0: Did that drive the way the practice operated?
1: Um, I think it more drove. I, I don't know that it drove the way the practice operated. I think it more drove the way that the practice thought about its data and collected its data and reported its data. And it certainly drove the. Uh, the way it was governed. I mean, in some ways, it added some additional complexity to the governance arrangements. And um, and in some ways, that that was really interesting because it just brought a, another partner into the... So that, so one of the things that um, is crucial in all of our social outcomes contracts is that they're delivered by a third sector partner. So they're not delivered by the local authority themselves. And so you had the local authority, you have PAUSE, you have... Um, the delivery partner and you have bridges, all then creating a partnership um, that enables the the work to thrive. And I think that it took us some time to to get that right. I don't think building partnerships that complicated is always easy. And I think we um, we probably didn't. It took us a little bit of time to get that right.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I also have a lot of more standard fee for service contracts, which I guess is, is a symptom of the pause Intervention no longer being untested.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, people can make, we can help people make spend to save cases really quite simply. And yeah. you know, we, we have um, a very good model for doing that. And so, yeah, that, that does mean that for lots of organizations, lots of local authorities, they're looking at it and thinking, well, we think we can save the money anyway. They don't have the same um, need to, to take risks or, or have a partner that can take risks, financial risks on their behalf, I suppose. So, um, yeah, that, that has been our experience is that the majority of the, the practices we have are straightforward yeah. fee for
0: I mean, it sounds like the, there are potential strengths and weaknesses of every type of model and every type of commissioning.
1: Well, absolutely. And we've also, so in addition to um, different funding models, we also, in some parts of the country, we run practices that operate across a number of local authorities, maybe two, maybe three. Oh, um, we've got practices that are slightly bigger. We've got practices that are a bit smaller. We've got practices that are um, looking at um, working, who, who work with women who've only have one child removed, but they're younger and they, they've got care experience. So... I would I would kind of put all of that, it, including the funding model, but also the other elements of the model. I would say we're constantly looking to see what difference it makes, whether it whether it makes a difference to outcomes, whether it makes a difference to to what we have to do, and so on. So, yeah, I I, I think we we have to stay curious and keep on asking. Yeah. Does anything that we do here make it? That's that's the thing, isn't it? Does anything we do here make our practice less effective or more effective? Um, And those are the questions that we're asking, particularly this year. I think this this year is a year where we're really being curious about that because we've got so many, so many variables that have changed, particularly with um, the changes we had to make during Covid. We want to know whether there's been an impact. So we're doing lots of thinking about that, being really curious about it.
0: Just a, a very quick question. You mentioned there that some of the practices operate across more than one mm. one council area. Is that scale important?
1: That is brilliant in some ways. You know, women don't care about local authority boundaries. No, of course. Um, you know, they really don't care whether they're in Liverpool or Wirral, for example. And so in some ways, enabling practitioners to cross boundaries is really is really positive Um, and that's been great and it is also you won't be surprised to know quite difficult to work across a number of different local authorities because they won't be operating in the same way and we'll be dealing with different cultures and you know We're learning much more about operating regional models and we have a number of them set up. Um, And I think when we first started, we really underestimated the impact it would have, particularly on the practice lead, having to think about all of the different people in all of the different local authorities. Um, But I think it has some real benefits as well. And certainly the practices that we deliver ourselves, the ones that we directly deliver, are across um, for Liverpool City region local authorities and and that has been a huge learning experience for us as well as really rewarding to be actually delivering frontline work.
0: Jules as a final question what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or in a charity or social enterprise who wants to make an impact in the way that you have?
1: Well so I think some of it I already said which is know your gaps know your weaknesses and fill them with brilliant people because you can't do everything and that's really important um but actually i was in a meeting earlier and i'm going to steal something that um somebody said in that meeting which is after all we're all just people dealing with people and i think that is really important to me it's particularly important because um you can work out numbers and you can think about all of these models and you can build things and you can deliver things. But at the heart of everything we do, it's people working with people. Yeah. And so you have to keep those people healthy and happy and enjoying coming to work. And that is really, really important.
0: I couldn't agree more. Jules. thank you so much for your time.
1: Oh, It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. It's been fun.
0: Well, I enjoyed that. That's for sure. There are a few things in particular I wanted to discuss with you in a bit more detail. One is the idea of the importance of focusing on quality and even process, you could say, just uh, the focus that Jules has on ensuring that the quality of pause practices is maintained. And within those practices, there's this constant need to keep learning, keep improving, and actually That's what the focus has to be on. And the important return on investment that everybody wants to see, i.e. a pound invested by a council on this service will deliver, I think it was £4.50 over three or four years. That will take care of itself if you focus on the quality, the process and the continuous improvement. The second point I wanted to highlight was how... Jules is extremely comfortable and everybody involved in Paul seems to be very comfortable about the fact that they're part of a broader movement of a new market which is developing to support vulnerable women who have had multiple babies removed into care and how this market wasn't there and how actually it's about creating a community of practice, a community of learning and that to me just seems fantastic and it's something that the private sector doesn't do but it's something that The charitable and social enterprise sector does really well there's also some very good learning around how if you are devolving the delivery of a particular service to local areas whether that's through a franchise model or a whatever model it is it's important to be very clear about what are the non-negotiables what are the things within the framework which a practice or a local delivery of a service has to have And what are the areas where there is some flexibility? And it seems that Paws have spent some time working out what the exact formula is for that. And it feels now that they've got that exactly right. And then finally, I think this is a fabulous case study of a founder having a clear plan to hand over not just the chief exec role, but the chair role over a period of time and Sophie deserves a lot of credit. Sophie Humphreys, the founder, deserves a lot of credit for sticking to that time frame and trusting Jules and others to take pause forward. So that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and as usual, don't forget to register on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure you never miss a future episode.